Welcome to episode seven of I Am Steve R. And I am Steve R. It is uh, Valentine's Day, which is a significant day for me in my own recovery because uh, February 13th, 1992, was an important day as I was uh, delivered to the Marion County Jail to begin serving time for my consequences that uh, for the behavior that I exhibited during the throes of addiction. And so that day has always kind of uh, stood out to me for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, I, was in, um, I was in a relationship very early in recovery. And uh, she brought me and dropped me off there, made the drive from Hattiesburg to Columbia to drop me off. And uh, every mile was painful. And so I felt like, you know, since today is Valentine's Day, maybe it's time that we talk a little bit about relationships and recovery. It is a bit of a controversial topic. And so I'm not going to sit here and give you a lot of advice, but I'm going to share my own experience and perhaps you can make some decisions for yourself about relationships and early recovery. Many of you are already in long-term relationships when you enter the recovery process. And so it's not as simple as, hey, I can't have a relationship. I'm already in a relationship. And to be honest with you, I have seen more people relapse over relationship issues than anything else. And it's not, it's really not close. And so I want to talk about that today because relationships can often lead to triggers that result in relapse. So uh, take a minute and uh, kind of reflect a little bit, kind of open your mind and just kind of listen to the things that I've got to say today because I think this is an important show because of the consequences that can come from a toxic relationship in recovery. So for me, I had, I guess I had about 14 days sober and uh, this young lady checked into Pine Grove Recovery there in Hattiesburg and uh, I thought she was awfully cute and and, uh, she had a lot in common with me and it didn't take long before we developed an attraction for each other. And there were some other guys in recovery that uh, in the recovery process with me, roommates of mine and sweet mates of mine, people that we went to group with, they were all very interested in her. So then the competitive nature uh, that I have, this hyper-competitive nature kind of kicked in. And I was like, you know, they all like her too. So that made her more attractive to me because it was the thrill of the chase. You know, it's like, well, if they all like her, I have to have her. And so, you know, we began to kind of date in rehab. And, I, and let me give you a little background on some of that stuff, too. Because here's what happens. As you begin to kind of get it, you begin to say, okay, well, listen, I can have a new life. I don't have to be entangled in all these negative behaviors that I exhibited before I got into recovery. And so you begin to get on this pink cloud, and everything seems so wonderful, and everything is so lovely. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm doing right. For me, I started feeling better about myself. I was like, you know what, here, listen, I have been through some very negative things. I have done some very negative things, and I'm going to pay my consequences for those negative things. And so these relationships and these opportunities kind of pop up, and they seem like a bit of a healthy distraction from the realities in life. And so we began to kind of talk, and we were having a good time. And, uh, you know, we'd sneak on the couch and kind of hold hands, you know, kind of, Uh, out of, you know, eyesight of the staff there. But it was pretty well established and kind of known throughout the unit that uh, we were having a romantic relationship. 
Now there was no you know physical interaction really. I didn't kiss her until the day that uh, you know I left left treatment. But um, you know it was one of those things that I thought in my in my convoluted way of thinking at the time I said you know what well, this is good because it gives me some incentive to stay clean and sober. Because if she's going to be clean and sober, then in order to be with her, I'm going to have to stay clean and sober. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe I can do it for her. If you've listened to this show at all, I've shared with you before, you have to do these things for yourself. You have to work through the steps to improve yourself. You've got to go to meetings for yourself. And then a byproduct of that for the people that love you is you become a little more lovable. Because everybody that truly loves you wants you to be the healthiest version of yourself. And so in early recovery, especially in early recovery, it has to be a very selfish undertaking. You have to put yourself first. And that is very foreign to us in some respects because you know, many of us are kind of enablers. We become codependent on other people. And that's kind of what this relationship ended up being. I was very codependent and she was very codependent on me because we kind of clung to each other kind of like a life raft uh, floating in the sea of despair. And so it was not really a relationship founded on love. While there was some, you know, some affection and some attraction, that sort of stuff, it really wasn't about love. It was really about, okay, I don't think I'm good enough. And so let me shift my focus of my recovery efforts towards somebody else. And that's as honest as I can be about that. So as time went on, we find out that I'm uh, making the transition from, I'd had to go to court, and a lot of people didn't think I'd come back. You know, when I went to court, they thought they'd just go ahead and, uh, and, and sentence me and keep me there. And that was on January 24th, 1992, that I came back, and when I came back to the unit after going to court, everybody clapped for me and everything else, and you know, there was some discussion that uh, the judge might actually sentence me to secondary treatment. And so while I was waiting around to find out, you know, incarceration dates and that sort of stuff, I stayed in treatment. Well, then when I found out that I was going to be going to the RID program at Parchman, I said, well, I'm not going to spend my last couple of weeks here of freedom uh, locked up in a treatment facility. And so I was at the next step secondary treatment facility, so I AMA'd. The day that I left to go to uh, Next Step, uh, my uh, rehab relationship, she, um, her insurance ran out. And so they had to discharge her after only a, a few weeks of treatment. So she was home. And so there I was at Next Step, uh, I guess in many ways, you know, worrying about the wrong things rather than focusing on myself. I was worried, hey, well, she's at home in this apartment and, uh, you know, she's got really nobody there to kind of hold her accountable. And so all of this control begins to kind of pop up. You begin to tell yourself, at least for me, I said, well, if I'm there, the chances of her staying clean and sober are better. If I'm there with her, then I can ensure that she's going to meetings and I can ensure that uh, when she gets a craving, she has somebody to kind of talk their way through it. And I would like to sit here and tell you that all those motives were noble. But in hindsight, I don't believe they were. I think it's I had invested so much in such a short time in this relationship that I felt the need to kind of control things. So I AMA'd from my next step, and I moved in with her. And um, 
you know, I guess it was good for a couple weeks there, but there was always this fear of the inevitable that I was going to leave and be incarcerated for several months. And so every single day, you know, I tried to get the most out of those days with her. I tried to kind of, uh, you know, sow some seeds, hoping to uh, harvest them later in the relationship because I believed, well, you know, what if I just show her how good this can be and what a normal life we can have and um, how great things could be, that that would kind of, you know, give her some fuel for the journey ahead when I wouldn't be available to her. And so she goes and she drops me off. And um, the whole way, you know, to, uh, to the Rankin County Central Mississippi Correctional Facility, that's where you go first, you know, for processing. You go up there and you get your HIV test, you get all these health tests ran, drug tests, everything else. And so the whole way up there, you know, I'm in shackles and all that sort of stuff, and, uh, and I'm worried about her. And I remember watching her drive away that day, and, and I was thinking, you know what, I'll see her again, but, man, it's going to be a tough ride, her having to do all this without me. And in many respects, I was kind of—I had kind of done her a disservice, because rather than you know allowing her to kind of cultivate and sharpen the skills that were required to stay sober of her own volition, you know, I was in many respects a codependent person in her life. And so once I was removed from the equation, all of a sudden you don't—you're not—you don't have somebody to come home to, you don't have somebody to sit and eat dinner with, you don't have somebody to talk to you when, you know, when you're having some difficult times. She did not really learn those life skills. And so I get there, and um, as soon as I got there, I made a collect call. She answered, of course. We talked, and we cried, and all that sort of stuff. And, and um, over the course of the next six months, she, she wrote me one time. I remember the one letter that I got. I, I was still at Rankin County, and I'd sent her, the, her a couple of letters, and she sent me back and told me how much she missed me. And... She's like, oh, babe, it's all going to be over with so quick, and you'll, you'll be back, and you'll be back in my arms, you know, soon. And uh, that kind of tied me over for a while. And then, of course, I got transferred to Parchman, and, and um, I still wrote, you know, once or twice a week. And then sooner or later, she stopped taking my collect phone calls. So then I would call her dad collect, talk to him, talk to her stepmom. And then, uh, you know, she just would never, never take my call, you know, which is one of those things. And I found out pretty soon that she had uh, moved out of our apartment and moved back in with her dad. And I thought, well, this will be good. She'll have somebody around. Well, her dad was also a guy that kind of struggled at times with chemical abuse. And so she was also worked at a bar, you know, and, and because she was cute, she got hit on a lot. And uh, I remember the more difficult day. I remember asking her stepmom one day, I said, well, is she dating anybody? And she goes, well, no, nothing that's serious at all. And here I was thinking, you know, well, we had something serious. And so there I was, you know, in, incarcerated, and you're powerless to do anything about any of this. And so you just kind of have to deal with it. What's incredible, too, is when I, when I got to uh, the RID program, you know, they give you these visitation forms. And I had a friend of mine that was also incarcerated that loaned me one stamp. And so I mailed all those visitation forms to her because I felt like if I had mailed them to my family, then she wouldn't get one. So I feel like if I gave one to her and sent her the address, she could fill out her form and then forward those forms to my parents. Well, she didn't do any of that. And so the whole time that I was incarcerated, I, I, I didn't get a single visitor. On visitation Saturday, 
you know, my parents didn't come. And the truth of the matter is I really didn't want them to come. I didn't want them to see me in that shape. But, uh, the, you know, in hindsight, I, you know, I probably robbed my parents of a little peace of mind because if they had been able to come up there and see me and, and lay eyes on me and hug me and everything else, it probably would have made the experience a little easier to deal with for them. But that didn't happen for me. You know, and the path is the path. It's one of the things that I'm a firm believer in. You know, if it was, if it was meant to be, then uh, those forms would have somehow made their way, you know, to Columbia, Mississippi, but they didn't. So once I got out of the RID program, I uh, went in search of her. It, you know, really at that point, I knew the relationship was over, but it's like you tell yourself, well, if I could just spend some time with her, if I could just get face-to-face with her, then everything will be okay. She'll see me and all those feelings will come rushing back. But she was a completely different person. She was a completely different person when I got out. She was all of a sudden so cold and very bitter and uh, found out much later that she had relapsed, you know, while I was away. And so I carried that guilt around with me for a long time. I mean, for years and years and years. I said, you know what, I did her disservice. And then life and maturity kind of teaches you, you know, well, that's not my burden to carry. You know, she's responsible for her own recovery. And so I had no right to try to own that responsibility. And so we talked for a while, and uh, we went to her dad's house and um, slept in the living room floor. And uh, I woke up the next morning, and she's up on love seat. She's kind of giving me this cold look and promises to call me later, and then I uh, never did. And uh, it was very difficult, you know, because in your mind, you know, maybe it's my you know, grandiose thinking or whatever or, or whatever, or your or control issues. I began to think, you know what, you know, if she just saw me, because I'm so dead-gum charming and so beautiful, right, then uh, she would be powerless against my wares of romance. Well, I got a pretty strong lesson in humility over all that because she wasn't in love with me. You, know, you tell yourself, you know, especially when you're locked up and you can't get to them, you say, you know what, it's, gonna, it's all going to be okay, it's all going to be okay. You try to reassure yourself. And, uh, you know, it just didn't pay off for me. And so I share that with you because I think it's important to understand that uh, not only did she relapse for a short time, she bounced in and out of the program for decades and uh, only has recently come back in recent years from what I understand. Now, I, I don't hold any responsibility in any of that, but the chances of a young relationship surviving an early recovery are very, very slim. I mean, so <laughs> completely, significantly, seriously slim. And so it's important to kind of understand that. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that we don't have some that make it, but my motivation for that relationship was incorrect. You know, I went into that as trying to kind of win a prize or whatever. And then in, in the end, it just simply wasn't meant to be. Now, to be fair to her, in the time that we were together, she was very supportive of me and uh, very, very much an encouragement to me. And then the season for us ended. And that's one of those things that's difficult to, uh, to kind of accept, you know, when you're young in recovery. And so I think it's important to kind of understand what will you do in the event that your relationship, no matter when it starts, what do you do 
if that relationship does not survive. Relationships, even under the best of circumstances, are at best a 50-50 proposition, right? Then you throw in two addicts, two drunks, two people with a lot of character defects, and those odds go down significantly. That's the reality of life. And so early in recovery, you're really working through this process of healing yourself. And the truth of the matter is, is I could not give her what she needed me to give and vice versa. She didn't have to give me what I needed from her because I needed to be learning some self-reliance as did she. And so that's a big part of all this. At some point in recovery, things are going to go extremely negative. That is life on life terms type stuff. It is going to be one of those deals where no matter how well intended, no matter how well thought out, your plans are going to change with, with or without your consent. That's just how it works. And so if I am in a relationship that in many ways is not equally yoked because you tell yourself, well, you know, they kind of get me because, you know, I'm going through this, this early stage of recovery. We, we're kind of doing this together. But what really happens is it's really kind of one person doing the deal. And then the other person almost kind of stays, you know, sober out of obligation. And then when there is some friction within the relationship, let's say there's a temporary breakup or whatever, you know, it's that much easier to go get loaded. It's like, oh, well, I invested so much in this and nothing ever works right for me. And look at me, I'm doing all the right things. I'm going to work every day. I'm staying sober. And, uh, you know, he or she doesn't love me enough. And so my answer to that is, from my old behavior, is to go get intoxicated in some form. It's to go get loaded. It's to find a way to escape from the problems that I have created. Now, one of the things I think is important to understand, too, is uh, I was in treatment with a guy, and I won't mention his name. I'll protect his anonymity here, but I think his story is rather significant in our episode today. Is He was in Pine Grove with me doing exceptionally well. I mean, not, not just kind of slowly figuring it out, like he had had this lightning bolt revelation that, you know what, I am not going to be able to drink and use like I did before, and I've got to find a new way to live. And so he is doing great, and he goes home on his weekend pass in Pine Grove, and he's so excited to get back and kind of show his wife and his family, like, look at the new and improved me. And he came back and he told us, hey, guys, i got to leave treatment. You're like, why? Why, why? why would you have to leave? It makes no sense. And essentially what happened is his wife had laid down an ultimatum. You come home or we're getting a divorce. There had become this power struggle within the relationship. And that happens, you know, once all of a sudden somebody within the family dynamic begins to change for the better, for the worse because the roles within the relationship begin to change. And so, you know, when this guy was drinking and drugging and everything else and not home, well, all of a sudden, all the responsibility kind of fell to the wife. And so she's taking care of the kids, and she's taking care of the home, and she's taking care of him. Well, now all of a sudden, you know, he's happy and healthy again, and he's ready to kind of take back some of that power, take back some of that control, take on some of that responsibility, and she began to feel threatened by that. She's like, well, wait a minute, I was doing all this without your help before. 
And so I can do it just fine now. And so it became this control issue and this real battle for control within the relationship between the two of them. So he AMAs from treatment and he goes home. Promises to still come to meetings and then uh, we don't see him. Never saw the guy again. Found out later that after about a month of this, that he went out and relapsed and then within six months they were divorced anyway. And so I think it's important to kind of understand, too, that uh, no matter how much we love somebody and no matter how much we've invested emotionally in a relationship, that even if we're out doing the right things, there is a chance that it is going to end. And more times than not, it is going to end badly. And so it is important to kind of get that dynamic established because without our support system, it's very, very difficult to get sober. We all know nobody gets sober alone. Not even Bill W. got sober alone. He had Dr. Bob. And so you begin to work through these things and you begin to see the changing of the dynamic within the nuclear family and within the relationship. And there are some people involved in your close circle that are sick too. And in many ways, they are contributors to your own demise because they do things that, that they, to trigger you. Because there are some people, listen, I'll be honest with you. When I, when I got clean and sober, I had some people tell me, a couple, I liked you better when you were drinking. I liked you better when you were drugging. I don't like you as much now. And part of that is because, you know, you, you kind of, in many ways, you become a bit of a spiritual invalid. And so when you're distracted and you're putting toxins into your body and you're exhibiting this negative behavior, it is easier for people to control you because people feel like you are somehow in their debt. And you tell yourself that, that I am in their debt because they have taken care of me and they have stayed loyal to me, whether they have or they haven't, but they've stuck by me through the worst of times. And a lot of times people have a vested interest in you staying out of recovery because it's much easier to control you. And I'm not going to sit here and say I'm negative about relationships. I'm not. But as the person really begins to get sober and there is this new awakening, this new feeling of self, then people begin to view you differently. Most of the time, it's in a very positive light because there are so many people that love you. They think, you know what, if we could just get him or her to stop drinking, then everything will be better. That's not always true, but once they get what they want, all of a sudden they get their loved one back right but if it's been one of these deals where you have been you know you know an alcoholic you know for years and years and years and years and years people develop these habits this is how we make it through the day this is how we make it through the month we're able to pay our bills and kind of get through this month and then we turn the calendar over and we start again and so with that becomes you know some some power of sorts it's like, this is what I've done, and then some people will hold that over your head. And so every relationship changes, most for the better, some for the worse. Now, if you are in a bad relationship, if you are in one of those relationships where they tell you, I liked you better when you were drinking, that is probably a relationship you need to get out of. Because chances are, you're not going to make it. If you don't have the most important person in your life supporting your recovery efforts, why would you continue to do them? Especially if you're one of these people that said, you know what, I gotta get clean and sober for my family. I gotta do it for them. And then when you find out that your efforts in, in many respects are in vain, 
then you begin to question yourself. Well, what am I doing all this for? I have some other friends that have gone through recovery and ended up getting divorced shortly after getting sober. As soon as they get out of treatment, they go home and everybody figures out, well, wait a minute, this isn't what I wanted. And there's this new person. And they're like, you know what? I don't love you the way that I used to. That is a real test for the recovering alcoholic or addict. To find out that someone that has been placed on such a pedestal in our life tells us that they don't want us anymore. And I can't speak for your experiences. Maybe you all are so beautiful and charming that uh, you've never had to to encounter heartbreak like that. But uh, I've had that happen several times. Uh, Even if I wasn't a jerk, sometimes it just doesn't work out. But we as addicts and alcoholics, we take everything so personal. Everything that happens, we find some way to assign blame where we are somehow at fault. And I've been in a bunch of relationships with, uh, you know, with, with females that uh, were in the guilt installation business. And no matter what I did, no matter how well intended, somehow I was wrong. And I needed to pay for that. I needed to be punished for disappointing them. And so when you begin to think about all those things, because life is difficult enough, you know, without being in an unsupportive relationship, it's very, very difficult just to get up, make it through the day, go to work, come home, pay the bills, put food on the table, even as a single person. And then when you begin to involve another person that uh, begins to kind of point out some of your faults, and and some of those are realistic. You know, sometimes you come back and you're a little bit prickly. And all of a sudden, you begin to rub them the wrong way. And so they begin to kind of speak out. They begin acting out a little bit and saying, hey, you did this and you did that. And I didn't like it when you did this. That's a lot for somebody young in recovery to deal with. Because life, again, living life on life's terms is a chore in and of itself. And then you add the stressor of the relationship. And I would venture to say I haven't seen the statistics. And I don't know how you track it anyway. But most relationships early in recovery don't make it, especially ones created in recovery, especially these rehab romances. I mean, let me just encourage you to, if you're going to rehab, do not get into a relationship. Don't do it. I'm telling you from experience and from the wisdom that I have collected in near 30 years of sobriety, I have seen more people go out and get loaded over that than anything else. I was in a meeting one time, and uh, this young lady, it it was a very, very sad situation. It was another one of these rehab romances, and they had been together, I guess, five, six months. And um, I won't call his name, but uh, he had gone out and gotten drunk, then went in search of drugs, and he called her and was beside himself with despair. I want to apologize. I've messed everything up, blah, blah, blah. I just need to come see you and tell you I'm sorry. And she's like, no, do not come over here. To her credit, she said, nope, do not come over here. I don't want to see you when you're drinking. We can talk about this in the morning when you sober up. Well, he was unwilling to accept that. So he got into a car and he drove and he had a car accident and killed himself. Don't believe it was intentional. I believe he was just severely impaired. But a week later, I saw her back in a meeting. She made one of those comments that's always stuck with me that I don't believe. She said, well, you know, he died so I could live. Let that sink in for a second. And I'll be fair with you, the only person that died so I could live is Jesus Christ. 
but in her mind that made sense because again it was one of those codependent relationships it was a very very sad situation and it rocked our recovery community because he was a guy that would get up and speak in meetings he chaired some na meetings and that sort of stuff and and he was well liked and loved it was this, the kind of guy that every time he saw you you know you go you, you extend your hand for a handshake and he hugged you don't know what happened, don't know what his motivation was, don't know what his reasoning behind the relapse was, but whatever it was, it wasn't sound reasoning. But he found a reason to go get loaded. I was told by a friend of the, of the group, the couple there, that uh, they had had a couple of tough days as his insecurities had kind of flared up and um, you know, he thought that the relationship may be ending. And apparently that was more than he could take. But I don't know why he felt like that he would make the situation better by relapse. There's a lot of that that goes hand in hand. You know, I've read before that some uh, leading addictionologists suggest that you shouldn't get into any, any new relationships or any romantic relationships the first year of recovery. I think everybody's a little bit different. I think it's a pretty good rule of thumb, but everybody begins to recover a little bit different. But everybody, and that's the thing about us, we addicts, is we always think we're the exception. Oh, I can handle it. That's for Those rules apply to everybody else. You know, I don't have to really do a four-step, right? Right? I don't have to do that. I'm six months into this thing. I'm going to have a relationship. One of the things that I would suggest to you, and again, these are all suggestions, is to communicate with your sponsor. And I know a lot of people go out there and they get a sponsor and they, uh, they try to get a sponsor that's like them or whatever. And, uh, you know, we've got similar interests and we, you know, we all like the same music. No, you don't need, that's not your sponsor. That's your friend. That's not, not to say you can't be friendly with your sponsor, but you need somebody that's going to hold you accountable. And before I got into a relationship or before I asked anybody out or before I accepted an invitation to go on a date, I would encourage you to contact your sponsor. Talk it through with them. Because they're going to they're gonna have a pretty good idea of where you are in your recovery. They also have the benefit of not having an emotional investment in this potential relationship. Because you know what happens, like when we start getting all googly-eyed about somebody, you know what I'm talking about. It's like somebody, because we all want to feel attractive to the opposite sex. It's a character defect of mine. I mean, it's like that's what we all, we all want to feel like we are attractive. We want to know that somebody likes us, that somebody looks at us and says, you know what, I would really like to be with them. They've got their stuff together. They're beautiful. They're handsome. They're somebody that I would like to invest my time with. We all crave that. Whether we admit it or not, that's what we feel. But your sponsor is going to be a lot more objective about that. And I know some people that say, well, my sponsor don't want me to do anything. A lot of times that's for your own good. Because in our minds, we start thinking, wow, look how hot she is, and this hot girl wants to go out with me, and if I don't go out with her, then, uh, you know, Jim J over there is going to go out with her, and they're going to end up getting married, and I'm going to look back one day and say, I blew this. You know, let's not get the cart before the horse here, Romeo. Let's take some time to kind of work this thing out. I'm a firm believer in that there is a plan for my life. I firmly believe that. Now, I believe there are decisions that I make that kind of altered that plan. You know, sometimes I may chase a rabbit trail and kind of get off the track a little bit. There are other times that I'm working really hard, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, and I've got a conscious contact with my higher power, and, I'm, and I probably can speed the pace up a little bit. 
but your sponsor is going to have you know an objective viewpoint more times than not about where you are in your recovery you know, many of us bring a lot of relationship baggage with us into recovery and it is important to take some time to work through all that so we do not repeat those same behaviors that are essentially sabotage to us as people and to AAs and, and to addicts. And so that's the, that's the issue with the time here. It's not as simple as, well, it's a firm rule for one year. Some of you may not need to be in a relationship for two years, 18 months, 36 months. Until you've done your work, you don't really need to be in a relationship. And listen, I know there are people out there that say, you know what, I just, I just want to be close to somebody. I just want to be able to hold somebody. I just want to have some level of intimacy with somebody. And I get it. But if you force that part of the process, you are really putting your heart and your sobriety and recovery at risk. Because many of us, especially early on, we're trading addictions because we, we get out of you know, a chemical dependency, and then we become dependent on another person because they, in turn, give us those feelings of euphoria. They give us that endorphin rush when we have physical intimacy, and all of a sudden, we begin to say, you know what, well, this is what's best for me. And so we kind of trade one addiction for another. Now, that time still counts in recovery, obviously. I mean, you, you, you haven't had a drink or a drug, so you can still go pick up a chip, but that is a, a very unhealthy undertaking, it's very unhealthy because you're basically holding that person hostage in many respects. Because now all of a sudden it's like, well, now I'm going to pour all of my energies, all of my cravings and all that sort of stuff, and I'm going to focus all that into this person, and it almost becomes a level of, of obsession. I've seen it. I've experienced it. That's what happens is all of a sudden you put this person on such a pedestal that they could never meet your expectations. And then when they don't, all of a sudden it all kind of comes crashing down. I think it's important to love people where they are and to see them for who they truly are rather than who we would have them to be. That is a very difficult thing because we begin to paint these pictures and we get ahead of ourselves and thinking, okay, well, one day we're going to get married and, and she's going to do this and we're going to have two and a half kids and we're going to have a white picket fence. And you know what? That might be what, what, what your higher power has in store for you. It might not be what they have in store for you. You know, they may want to be an apartment dweller, never have kids, and raise dogs. You never know. That's why it's so important to live in today. Live in what I can do today. Now, once you're in a relationship that is of a healthier variety, you'll get a lot more benefits from that. Because, again, you don't want to be, you know, basically uh, survivors of a shipwreck clinging to the same life raft, and that's what draws you together, kind of holding each other like ransom notes. That's kind of a big part of this process. And so when you have matured and spiritually grown to the point that you can be self-reliant, because there is a big difference between being lonely and being alone. Some of the happiest times in my life, and they were very short-lived, were when I was alone. There is some comfort in being alone. There is misery in being lonely. And you can be lonely with somebody else. There have been times in my life I've been lonely in a room full of people. Because you don't feel a connection to anybody else. I'm thinking, I just want to get out of here. 
And so it's important to kind of understand once you get into, you know, a period, you get through this initial period of healing and you begin to become self-reliant and you begin to understand this is what I have to do for my program. This is the price of poker for me. I've got to go to these meetings. And, you know, once you meet somebody and say, listen, here's the deal. I'm in recovery. Uh, You're welcome to drink as much as you want to, but I might not be able to date you. And there are other people, of course, that are they're perfectly okay with that. Yeah, you know, it's it's our issue. It's not their issue. But there are other people that'll love you enough. So you know what, drinking's not important to me. I just won't drink around you, or I won't drink at all. But it's important to kind of get those barriers established. And I think early on, it's impossible to do that because we are in such a state of desperation to be loved and for somebody to validate us that we are a good person, we are a desirable person. And so once you have found a way to kind of love yourself and we've built ourselves back up into strong and self-reliant people, I think then and only then we can love somebody else. We have the capability of loving somebody else. And, and there are so many people that say, well, there's so many restrictions on this. You know, here's the, guy, here's the deal, guys, and, and this is as honest as I can be about this. If there are people that have been sober or in recovery longer than you, and they seem happier and more well-adjusted and more successful than you, then you need to listen to them. You know, when I first got into recovery, I was going to be the guy to reinvent the mousetrap, and I was going to be Mr. AA and be the most sober guy in the room, and I was going to get 10 years' worth of sobriety in 12 months. didn't work out that way for me. And I feel like I'm a smart guy. I've been told that most of my life. You know, Steve's really smart. And that may be true. I may be smarter than the average bear. But I couldn't outsmart AA. I had to do it one day at a time. And it sounds like a cliche, but it's the truth. I wouldn't trade a single day of sobriety for, for any period of vicarious living. Because I have learned something about myself. I have learned something about dealing with life on this third rock from the sun every single day. Every single day. And at least once or twice a week, I hear from one of you or somebody that you know or some friend or some random stranger that says, you know what? You know, my kid's an alcoholic. My kid's a drug addict. My wife is an alcoholic. My husband is an alcoholic. And I don't know what to do. There are so many people out there that have such needs and they don't know how to address them. And we think, well, we can just kind of do it in secrecy. Well, we'll just kind of quietly do this. You know, is there like a prayer that he can say? Is there like, you know, if he just kind of recites the steps and then walks around, you know, the circle like three times while he does it with a candle burning, you know, will that like remove his desire to drink? No, no, it won't. We're all looking for the easier, softer way, right? But the only time we fully recover is when we do what's worked for centuries. I guess it's more decades. I guess I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But there is a program in place. And if you are willing to be painstaking in this phase of your recovery, you'll see some incredible promises come true in your life. And you will have healthier, more beautiful relationships than you ever imagined. You just can't rush the process of getting sober. And you can't rush the process of the relationship. I can tell you, When my former significant other went back out and stayed out, that it took a big toll on me. It did. And uh, I felt very guilty about many, many things. 
and I felt in some ways I had probably lessened the quality of her life. I looked back at that time and I thought, you know, we had a good time together. But the truth of the matter is, is I might have actually been a negative in her life. It was positive for me, but may have actually been negative. Now, I don't waste any time thinking about that today, but I wanted to share that with you today. Because when we start a relationship before we're ready, it might not just be us that gets hurt. We might be hurting them. So I hope that you have a great Valentine's Day today. Whether you're in love with somebody or not, pick up the phone, call somebody that you do love, and say, you know what, happy Valentine's Day. I know we're not in a romantic relationship, but mom, dad, sister, brother, cousin, whoever, I want you to know that I love you. I'm a firm believer in that sort of stuff because I have had that happen in my life where I get an unexpected message or an unexpected call from somebody and they share something positive. I say, you know what, I appreciate you. I really do. It means so much and it doesn't cost anything. I mean, you're, more times than not, you, know, you send a 10-second text message and say, hey, this one you know I'm thinking about you today, man. Hope that you're great. Appreciate your contribution to my life. That means more to me than anything somebody could buy me. You know what I'm saying? So because it means something to me, I try to give those things right back out into the world. I try to put those things out there because I want to get them back. Like, like the big book tells us, you know, we talk about, uh, and we talk about expectations. We talk about serenity. Uh, we talk about, you know, karma and those kind of things as we begin to kind of work through our spiritual awakening. You know, you, you get back what you put out. Like people tell you, you can't keep it if you don't give it away. Well, when you give wisdom, you gain wisdom. When you give love, you get love. It's as simple as that. And so let me encourage you, if you want more of that in your life, if you want better friends, then be a better friend. If you want more of those little love notes for yourself, send more of them out. And that sounds almost a little bit selfish, but I get more out of giving and sending those than I do receiving them. And that's what kind of led me down that train of thought. I said, as much as this means to me, you know, what if I dug up somebody on Facebook or whatever that, uh, you know, I hadn't talked to in years and maybe we had a resentment and uh, I've moved on from that. Maybe I've never freed them from that. And uh, I'll share a brief story with you. I'm going a little bit long today, but uh, I told you guys I was going to be a little more dedicated to this now that I had a little more time. But, uh, you know, I had an opportunity to make some amends to somebody here a year or so ago. I didn't even realize I had to make those amends. I didn't realize that I had harmed this person. And just kind of in a chance conversation, it's like my higher power kind of laid it on my heart. And I did it. I said, listen, I don't know if you remember any of this, but uh, I remember this and I want to tell you that I'm sorry. And that person is somebody I hadn't seen in probably 25 years. And now I hear from them regularly, regularly. They're a big, they're a big supporter of mine now. And I didn't need the support. I also didn't understand that I was carrying that around with me until the opportunity came up for me to make amends. And to me, that is kind of sharing love. If I'm willing to tell you that I am sorry or that I forgive you, that is another example of me loving you. And I think that is important. We need as much of that as we can possibly get. Well, that's it for today. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're dealing with. But I want you to know, no matter what the disease tells you or what that little voice in your head tells you, you are not alone because I am right there with you.